If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians 1, verse 15, and we'll pick up there in a few minutes as we begin a new series this morning called Hail Incarnate Deity, in which we'll be anticipating and celebrating Christmas by looking at Jesus and the incarnation, at the shocking nature of God becoming human for our sakes. Uh, What is the significance of that event that we celebrate at Christmas? Why should a proper view of the incarnation uh, not just bring meaning to this holiday season, but actually alter the course of our lives as we follow after Him? Those are the questions that we're going to be uh, wrestling with and celebrating together over these next few weeks, starting this morning, right here in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It says this, verse 15, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile Himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Before we go further, I ask you join me in prayer. Lord, as we step into the Christmas season, as we begin celebrating Advent together, I pray, Lord, that in your beautiful, humble, profound, unique way that you would come and open our eyes, that we would step out of this season carrying with us a greater appreciation of who you are, of what you've done, of the miracle that was the first Christmas and what it means for us. Lord, would you do that in our hearts, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name. Amen. In the beginning, there was nothing. No trees, no sky, no earth, no sun. No atoms and molecules, no gravity or magnetic fields. Time itself did not exist. But in that place, before physical matter or space or time, there was God. The infinite one. The eternal one. Full of grace and love. Light and life. Unlimited in scope and duration. Infinitely perfect and fully self-existent, needing nothing from anything outside of himself. Absolute in dominion. The most pure, the most simple, 
the most spiritual of all essences. Illimitable in His immensity, inconceivable in His mode of existence, and indescribable in His essence. Known fully only by Himself, because an infinite mind can only be fully comprehended by itself. In a word, a being who, from His infinite wisdom, cannot err or be deceived, and from His infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just, right, and kind. What happens before creation, before atoms and molecules, we cannot fully comprehend, for it was outside of time as we know it. But at some point, this eternal, unlimited, all-powerful God created. Out of God's Word and God's will and God's power came an incredible burst of light and energy and matter beyond anything that we can comprehend. Everything that we know came rushing into existence out of nothing. Light and darkness, atoms and molecules, the things that we know and see and touch and understand, all rushing into existence out of nothing. Galaxies and solar systems, stars and planets, all of them perfectly balanced to allow for complex life. The idea of an infinite creator who brought the universe into existence out of nothing has fallen out of favor with our culture. With the rise of secularism and skepticism, there came with it a great push to secularize our schools and to remove anything that smells of religion. And in the process, we had to invent for ourselves a new story, a one in which the universe somehow came out of nothing, birthed and governed by random chance, a story in which life spontaneously came from non-life. And vague notions of Darwinian evolution are given blind acquiescence and said to have created complex life, even human life, from nothing. Over time, these secular doctrines have risen to the point of being considered unquestionable in our culture. To second guess them or push back or dig deeper is to invite the shame and scorn of the intellectual elite. And as I grew up in this atheist secular culture, I never questioned those doctrines. I considered them to be tested, trustworthy, unquestionable things on which I could build my secular life. And yet, right in the midst of this cultural moment, it is science itself which is undermining secularism and pointing powerfully to the reality 
of a creator God. Science screams with the reality that nothing is born out of nothing. That life simply cannot emerge from non-life. That the things we see around us cannot be explained by Darwinian macroevolution. Across the board, it fails to explain life as we actually know it to be. Even the lifeless universe outside of Earth could never be explained apart from God, for it is fine-tuned to a stunning degree. If the laws and constants governing our universe weren't exactly right, then either the universe wouldn't exist at all, or complex life would be impossible within it. And there are dozens of examples of this, but one of them is the strength and force of gravity. The, the rate or the power with which two things pull on one another. Gravity could be much stronger or much weaker than it is right now. But if it were even slightly stronger or slightly weaker, life would cease to exist. It's been fine-tuned to an incredible degree. In fact, if you had a tape measure stretched across the entire known universe, not our galaxy, but the entire universe, all of it, 14 billion light years long, and every inch on that ruler represented a potential setting for gravity, there would only be one single inch in the entire universe that would allow for complex life to exist. The odds of that happening aren't 1 in 10 or 1 in 100. If it was 1 in 100, you would still probably say, yeah, I think the universe was created. I think it was designed. It's not 1 in 100. It's 1 in countless trillions of trillions of trillions. But it happened. Gravity was set to the exact setting it needed to be for us to exist. And here's the catch. Scientists have identified not just gravity, but 30 other measurable parameters, which all had to be set with similar accuracy at the same time in order for life to even be possible in the universe. Another example of this is the cosmological constant, which has to do with the speed at which the universe is expanding. Uh, the odds of it being just right are one in a hundred million, billion, 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 billion. So if you take those two factors together, just two out of the 30, what are the odds that gravity would be set just right and the speed of expansion in our universe would be set just right and that they would correlate to each other? What are the odds that you get those two things at the same time? You ready? One in a hundred million, trillion, 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 trillion. Which is statistics for impossible. It's impossible. We still have 28 other factors that need to be perfectly balanced to make life a possibility in the universe. That still doesn't get you life from non-life. And it certainly doesn't get you the almost infinite complexity 
of human life and human DNA. Even if all 30 factors are right, you're not even close to what we have today. This, what you're seeing around you right now, is impossible. It should not be here. It should not exist. You should not exist. But here you are. You are living in an impossible reality that cannot be explained apart from an infinite, intelligent, creator God. How could this be? How could all of this exist? How did you come to exist out of nothing? God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or in verse 16, which we read this morning, it says, In Him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. The very first thing we have to understand about the universe that we live in is that it was created out of nothing, through Him and for Him. If you can grasp that, you will be light years ahead of the secular culture that we've been born into. Verse 17 says, He was before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Everything owes its creation and continued existence to God. He's holding it all together actively right now as we sit in this room. It's all rooted and grounded in Him. If He were to withdraw His hand from it or or alter one factor by one inch, all of it would cease to exist. It exists because God exists. You and I exist because God exists. From the foundation of the world, He was. And creation, just by being created, just by existing, points back to its creator. So whether you're studying quantum physics or astrobiology or DNA sequencing or just going for a walk and looking at a mountain, you are seeing evidence of the creator God. In fact, Romans 1 says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, which are hard for us to see and grasp, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In other words, God is on display in every field of science, in every sunset, in every orca whale, in every baby, And wherever you're looking in creation, all of it is pointing back to Him and speaks something of His existence and His goodness. His grace, 
His majesty, His beauty, His power. But God didn't stop there. He didn't only reveal Himself in mountains and babies and astrobiology. He actually revealed Himself even more clearly by stepping into humanity. By becoming human and putting on flesh and blood, that holy, infinite, incomprehensible, unlimited Creator chose to limit Himself. The one who existed before space and time, the one who, who through whom and for whom all things were made, stepped into humanity. So if you want to know what God is like, you can look at a mountain or a pot of whales or pictures of deep space. It all came from his imagination and was brought into reality through his creative power. So you're learning something of him from what we can see. It speaks something about what he's like. But if you really want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. That's where God fully and finally discloses Himself. Where the incomprehensible becomes comprehensible. Where the infinite becomes finite. Where God stepped out from behind the veil with eyes that you could look into. With hands that you could touch with a voice that you could hear just the way you're hearing my voice now. With a body that could sweat and bleed. With a heart that could be broken. Verse 15 and 19 say, The Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him. All of it. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing what God is like. Not on a good day, but in His absolute essence. You are seeing the incomprehensible one made comprehensible for your benefit. You're seeing the one through whom and for whom all things were made. The one who existed before time and space existed. You're seeing a window into the very heart of God. N.T. Wright, who's way smarter than me, says it this way. He says, how can you cope with the end of a world in the beginning of another one? How can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, 
a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Meaning that most people enter the Christmas season willing and ready to feel some sense of festivity. But very few are willing to stand in awe. To stand in the tension between hundreds of billions of galaxies and a small manger in Bethlehem. To stare into the face of eternity and into the face of Jesus, knowing them to be one and the same. To hold in our vision the transcendent and the tangible, the invisible and the visible, the holy of holies, the most spiritual of all things, and the man who walked the streets of Galilee looking pretty normal. From the heights of heavenly realms, that place where angels fear to tread, he descended into the slums, the confusion, the chaos, the oppression, the pain and absurdity of being human in a fallen world. From the greatest light all the way down to the deepest darkness. Not for His sake, but for ours. For Scripture tells us that He did not come simply for show and tell. His purpose was not just educational. It was redemptive. It was not simply to enlighten unenlightened people. It was to liberate. He he didn't come to cheer us up but to set us free. Not to encourage the old self, but to put it to death and birth a new one. He didn't come to show a bit of heaven, but to break the powers of hell. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him, to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What God set out to do for us and for humanity, he could only do by becoming human. The creator of the universe had to become human Because it was the only way that his blood could be shed. It was the only way to make peace and to set us free. You see, long before Jesus came as the image of God and the exact representation of his being, God created humans in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, opening pages of Scripture. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. You and I were supposed to be what Jesus was when He walked the streets of Galilee. 
That wasn't meant to be a one-off. That was par for the course. You want to know what God's original intent for humanity was? What we were designed to be? Just look at Jesus. He was the only perfect image bearer. The only one in the history of the world who who captured that and who got it right. There, you can look at him and say, that's that's it. That's what God is like. But that that was your job. That was my job. That's what we were designed to do. We were designed to be in closest relationship with the Father. To be full of God's presence and God's spirit and his love and his grace and to embody and reflect that to the world. Creation was supposed to look at humanity and say, that's what God is like. You want to know what God is like? You can look at the Himalayan mountains or the Andromeda galaxy or or whatever it might be, but if you really want to know, look at humanity. Made in his image, full of his presence reflecting him to the world. That was God's design. But that didn't happen. It all went wrong. It all went sideways. The ones who were supposed to bear his image rejected him completely, rupturing that relationship and plunging creation into the chaos that we know and experience today. We didn't want a world made through him and for him We wanted a world made by us and for us. So we left God's protection and submitted ourselves willingly to the tyranny of Satan's sin and death. It's the only way to explain the human experience today. Why are things so hard? We set ourselves in opposition against God twisting our hearts in the process. And along the way, we've racked up a debt that we could never repay. God didn't just come to show us what He's like. He came to rescue us from sin and death, to save us from hell, both now and forever. And He did it at great cost to Himself. The One who made the stars balanced gravity and the cosmological constant was now going to bleed and die for our sakes. For this debt had to be paid. God's holiness and justice requires it. God will never be okay with evil. He will always be set against it. It will always antagonize him. He can't just let it go or accept it. He cannot be false unto himself. It's impossible. But how could this debt be paid? Who will represent humanity before God, pay the price, and repair our relationship? Well, they have to be human. In a sense, uh, we have a debt that must be paid by humanity or a human representative. But humanity doesn't have the innocence, the ability, or the resources to pay it back. Only God does. Only humanity should pay the debt, but only God can. So what happens next? 
Well, God in his infinite wisdom became human. Not just to represent God to humanity, though we needed that. We needed to see what he was like. But to represent humanity before God. I think we needed that even more. Only a human representative can pay the price for our sin. Only a human being can bear human sin in his body. God alone couldn't pay the price for humanity because he wasn't human. And God couldn't die for human sin because God can't die. But Jesus can. By becoming human, by incarnating on Christmas, suddenly a whole new world of possibility opens up for us. By becoming human, Jesus could do what no one else before or since has ever been able to do. He could represent God to humanity perfectly and represent humanity before God perfectly. He could bear our sin and die for it because he was human. And he was the perfect sacrifice because he was God. Innocent, infinite, eternal. Without Christmas, you don't get salvation. Without the incarnation, there is no justification. Without flesh and blood, you don't get freedom and forgiveness. He had to do this. And that's exactly what he did. This is the heart of love. John Stott says it this way. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. And God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone and God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Your debt has been paid. Your place has been taken. You are forgiven, cleansed, loved, and accepted. It's all been accomplished for you as God became human and went to the cross. And what does Jesus ask in return for all of this? What does he want from us? In a phrase, I think he would say, trust me. I want you to trust me. Will you trust me with your life? Will you trust me with your eternity?
Will you trust that by becoming human, I accomplished what needed to be accomplished to set you free? Will you trust? Will you trust in me? Not in culture or skepticism or cynical college professors. Not in YouTube or nightly news or half-baked friends. But instead, will you trust in me? For some of you, that means trusting Jesus for the first time this morning with your life, with your heart, with your past, with your future, with your sin, with your eternity. It means turning from the old in order to embrace the new. Turning from sin and trusting in the cross and the resurrection of the Son of God. But for those of us in the room who have already done that, I think the invitation is to trust Jesus more. Over the course of my life, I've moved from atheism to trusting Jesus with my eternity. But to be honest, most days I still feel pretty fragile. And Jesus says, Will you trust me? With your life, with your family, with your money, with your worldview, with your possessions, with your time, with your future, will you trust me? Do you believe that I'm trustworthy? Do you believe that I have supremacy over everything? to quote Colossians 1, that all of this will be guided to a fitting end and that you will stand before him in resurrection life. Because if you believe that, it changes things. It changes the way that you live. Did God really become human? Did the hurricane really become a person? Did the fire really become flesh and walk among us? Because if he did, if that's true, that the God of the living and the dead was here, it changes everything. And we're left grappling with the implications for our life. It either means that or it means nothing. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you now, Lord. We worship you in spirit and in truth. And as we come to you now, God, we bring all our fragility, all of our vulnerability, all of our doubts and our thoughts and our questions and our aches and our pains, and we bring them to you.
We want to bring the fullness of who we are before the living God, before the one who came from the highest place to the lowest place for our sakes. And Lord, over these next few weeks, as we contemplate the beauty of Christmas, as we sit in the presence of the incarnation, of that moment of what it meant for you to be born in a manger in Bethlehem. I pray that the reality of it would sink into our hearts, Lord. And and that as it does, there would just be a fresh sense of faith that would arise. Some of us for the first time saying, Jesus, I see you. I see you. I see what it is that you've done. I'm beginning to grasp why you did it, and and I want that. But for all of us, Lord, every single one of us in the room can trust you more. So as we see what you've done, the beauty of what you've done, your character, your heart, your love, your grace, would we be drawn deeper into trust. No matter what happens in this life, and no matter how the world is shaping, we might find ourselves more and more deeply rooted in you. We trust you, Lord. Most of us in the room can say that already, that we trust you. We trust you with our sin, with our forgiveness, with our rebirth, with our redemption, with our eternity. And yet we can say at the same time, Jesus, uh, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus, we trust. Would you come gently now in love and speak into our lack of trust? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.